Can you imagine all the universe singing that? And as they are beginning the song, I'm thinking, I want the whole universe like to shout at the end. It's like a whole stadium, a billion fold should just shout out praise to God for such a salvation. Um, how, how powerful. What a message we have. What good news. And we are on the planet to share that good news. And as we do share it, one of the things that we encounter is people that just aren't so sure that it's not news that's actually too good to be true. Can we mortals actually know for sure that we can be rescued from sin and death. I mean, can we know that we have eternal life? And so as we near the end of this letter of 1 John, we come to a verse, one of the most quoted verses in the entire letter because we use it so often in sharing the gospel with people that something that one might think from a human perspective you could never know, God has made known to us that we can know that we have eternal life. Uh, as we near the end of any of our series, I find myself with a mixture of joy and grief. The, um, the anxiety of parting um, starts, starts to build. Next week, you'll have a special treat, J.D. Crowley, uh, who's actually uh, written a commentary on this and then applied it to a number of the uh, false uh, teachings of our day available in our, our bookstore. Uh, J.D. Crowley will be finishing out the, the final verses on this, and so I know that we'll all look forward to that. This morning, however, we are looking at verses 13 through 15 of 1 John 5. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Well, the Apostle Paul, Apostle John, uh, made clear when he wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, that he was doing so for the sake of those who had yet to believe. I remind you what he said toward the end of that gospel in John 20. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in these books, this book. He uh, actually chronicled seven of them in the gospel. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Well, the Apostle John writes his epistle of 1 John, on the other hand, to those who are already believing in Jesus. He's again going to link faith with life, but this time he is writing to those who have already believed. 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And we've taken those words that you may know 
as the theme of this entire letter, where John lays out doctrinal and practical tests through which we can have confidence in gospel truth and through which we can discern uh, who are false teachers and who are not, and through which we can gain assurance regarding our own status before God that you may know. This is the beauty of a revealed religion versus a religion you just discover on your own, versus a religion that's just of your own making and of your own imagination. A revealed religion gives you a ground, a basis for having certainty regarding the truth, the gospel, the good news that there is life in Jesus. Our text this morning reminds us of how John began this letter. You remember he wrote, we are writing these things, we are writing you, that your joy or our joy may be complete. It gives joy to share the gospel. It gives joy to receive it, to know these things for certain. It's actually difficult, if not impossible, to be joyful in Christ if you're confused or unsure of His gospel, what it actually teaches, or confused or unsure of your own personal standing with Him. So here, toward the end of his letter, John returns to why he wrote his readers, and his readers being those who are believing into the revealed character of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So to all who are connected to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, God gives priceless gifts of grace, and we're going to look at those this morning. He gives, first off, as we read in verse 13, assurance of life, that is, eternal life, God's life in us. Second, He grants to us confidence in prayer. And third, He gives us the privilege of intercession for others. Let's ask God to use this in our lives as we work through this. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your great grace to us. Thank You for the gifts we have in Jesus. And God, we live in a world of lies. We find our own hearts deceive us. The battles that we face, the fears that we encounter, the, the difficulties, the sorrows, uh, all wear on us and have at times shaken our faith. And so, God, I pray that today you might solidify our faith in you, that you might encourage us to live the life that you have granted to us in Jesus Christ. And God, I also pray that you would reveal to those here who are outside of Jesus, both those who know it at this moment and those who don't, that you would open the eyes of their heart and that they might, you would grant to them life, that they might put faith in Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the first divine gift that God gives to those who believe in Jesus is this assurance of life. We read it once again, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In the preceding verses, verses 11 and 12, John has just made the point that if you have the Son of God through faith in Him, you have life. If you don't have Him, you don't have life. Christ and life are inseparable, and this is the testimony, the sworn testimony of God Himself as to how we gain eternal life. So, 
line up every religion in the world and ask the question, are they putting faith in Jesus for their life, or are they giving you some alternative? The alternatives lead to death. Christ alone gives you life. Now, sometimes people struggle, and we struggle at times, individuals here, whether or not we really have eternal life. Where we need to focus is whether or not we are trusting in Christ as the Scriptures reveal Him to be. Now, why do I say that? You can't give life to yourself. This is beyond human ability. This is something that has to be given to you. And so, where your focus needs to be is is not so much on do I have this as am I trusting in Jesus? Do I believe the testimony uh, of God regarding who He is as the Scriptures reveal Him to be? Do I believe in His name, His revealed character as the Christ, the Messiah? Do I believe in His deity as Son of God sent in the flesh to rescue us? There are others that would tell us that it's actually presumptuous to think you have eternal life. In fact, this would be the natural human way to think. I mean, God is beyond our grasp. Eternal life is beyond our grasp. Um, And they're thinking in terms of who knows what's beyond the grave, and they say it's presumptuous to think that you have eternal life. Well, that would be true. I mean, it's logical. Only, Only if God had not made clear how we can know. See, I can say it's presumptuous if God has said nothing about it. But when God has given His testimony as to what is true regarding this theme that I, if I have Jesus, I have life, then it's no longer presumptuous to think that I have it. It's presumptuous to say that I don't if I'm trusting in Jesus. Because if otherwise God is, is a liar, I'm calling God a liar. It is not based, eternal life is not based on your performance or on mine, it is based on the performance of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone. And it is based on the reliability of the promises of God. That's where we're banking our trust. Our responsibility, what God calls us, how God calls us to respond to the gospel is to respond in faith, to trust what He has said. He has taken upon Himself the responsibility and since he's the only one that can do it, of giving us life. So I'm not earning my life. I am trusting in Jesus who gives me life. No one has earned eternal life or ever will. It is a free gift to all who are believing in Jesus. Now, our text indicates that this is not something that's just in the future. It says you have eternal life. To you that believe, you may know that you have, present tense, eternal life. Eternal life, then, is the current possession of a believer. It's not just a future gift we get after we die. We already have it now. It is a present certainty and a present experience, even though the full benefit of it is yet to come. So, eternal life is a divine life given to us. And because it's divine, because it's God's life in us, it lasts forever. That's quantity. That's duration. 
But the eternal life from God has a divine quality to it as well. It's not just how long it lasts, but what quality it is. It is from God. It's God's life in us. So it's a godly quality. It bears His character. His life in us is transforming us even now. And that's why a person with eternal life starts starts becoming more and more like Jesus. His or her life takes on the character of love for God and love for others that manifests itself in practical ways. It's the acid test. God's life in us bears fruit. Remember, Jesus uses this kind of imagery. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And because of that, you're going to bear fruit if you're abiding in Him. Okay? So, God's life bears fruit in keeping with what kind of life it is. An apple tree bears apples. A peach tree bears peach trees. God's life bears spiritual fruit, the character of God Himself. We call it the fruit of the Spirit. Qualities like love and joy and peace and long-suffering instead of short-temperedness. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are growing in our lives. Fruit doesn't just appear overnight. Like, you know, there's people that put all the ornaments on the Christmas tree and the packages under the tree just on Christmas Eve. So Christmas Eve, the kids go to bed and nothing's there. And Christmas Day and it's all there. That's not the Christian life. Christianity is not just adding ornament to your life. It's life from Jesus that produces fruit in your life, and that fruit begins even now in this life. The Holy Spirit gives us this life. He indwells every true believer in Jesus. His life in us changes us. And just just think about how all this holds together. His life changes us at the level of our minds and our hearts and our desires and then is going to flow out through our words and our actions. So it's not just about my trying harder to do the right thing or getting my new list of boxes I check off. It's about actually having God's life in me and being close to Him so that who He is starts shaping who I am, and then who I am starts flowing out. Like, I'm I'm not having to prepare so much what I'm saying or how I'm living. I'm just being who I am. I'm being the person that God is changing me to be. These are the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in them, to live our daily life in. He wants our life to display these good works. This is what Ephesians 2.10 talks about after saying that, that we are saved by grace through faith and not of our own works. He goes on to say, we are His workmanship, we're His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, there's the life, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, this life, it's not just a fiction and it's not just future, it's now. Good works don't produce life in us. Life in us produces good works. And that life is ours through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, only through Him. So, here we find reason for humility and for certainty. They go together. Humility, that we have life. 
purely because of the goodness of Jesus, not because of our own. And we have certainty because of the reliability of God's promises and the strength of God's power. We have life. This assurance of life is a precious gift from God to all who believe. So, the question this morning is, have you turned from your self-trust and self-rule, and that's, you know, one or the other. Both of those can be a problem. They usually go together. Have you turned from your self-trust and your self-rule to trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son? I mean, you trust lots of things. You're sitting in a chair that you trusted to hold you up. You you trust your car to get you home, even though you know from time to time a car breaks down. You're, you're trusting the various relationships that you have, that you've built over time, even though you know that sometimes those things go sour. The question is, will you trust the completely reliable God who's made these promises in Jesus Christ or not? Why would you withhold that trust? It very likely has a lot to do with the self-rule. You don't want him to be in charge. And then we need to ask the question, why wouldn't you want him in charge? Like, you actually think that you can navigate your life better than he can? That's almost the definition of insanity. Don't you think? I mean, if God is who he reveals himself to be, why do you think you can do it better? So, God offers to us this life of trust, trusting in him. Counting God to be completely trustworthy when he promises you the eternal life through his son. Then if you are trusting him that way, then you can know that you have eternal life. You have it. Revel in it. Grow it. Cultivate it. Anticipate what is yet to come. You have life from him. And this living relationship with God, this relationship of life, God's life in you actually leads us to the second great privilege gift that God gives to us, and that is confidence in prayer, verses 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we're going to see that this is not just talking about God's ability to hear, like, you know, God's infinite, He hears everything. But this is a, he- a hearing that has to do with attention. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. The word confidence is a common word, actually, in the New Testament. It's often translated boldness. It's used, for instance, of the bold witness of the apostles as they are filled with the Holy Spirit. It actually talks about freedom of speech, a boldness of speech, um, you know, being able to say what needs to be said and and say it powerfully. Well, the text says we have confidence toward Him. We have confidence toward Him. It's talking about our approach to God. Now, step back a moment and just think about this. Given who we are and given who God is, why should God listen to us at all? I mean, who are we? I mean, look how many billion people there are in the earth. And think about who God is. Why should he pay attention to me at all? And, and then when I factor in that I'm a sinner by birth and by choice, 
and, and that I'm a, a creature of time, I'm, I'm transient, I'm fading like a leaf on the wind, what mortal sinner could be so bold as to come confidently to God, boldly in speech toward God? Well, the Scriptures actually give us the answer of how we can come boldly. We studied it when we went through our series in Hebrews. I remind you of Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So, He's interceding for us. He's our go-between. He's advocating for us. He's paid the price of our sin for us. He's shed His own blood for us. He's risen from the grave. He's, he's at the right hand of God. We have somebody in the inner sanctum of, of the throne room of the King of the universe. Because of that, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, to suffer with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence, there's our word, boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. Grace is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting more than you deserve. It's favor bestowed. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And really, there are few moments in our life where we are not in a time of need. Our perception of that need varies, but the reality is we're a needy, broken people, and we need to come to God. This confidence is further defined that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, this is important. You know, prayer is a bit of a mystery to us, and I want to do my best to try to reduce the mystery. I won't reduce it completely, okay? Because prayer is a, a God-given thing, and like eternal life, it's beyond, it's beyond our capability of fully comprehending, but we want to work at it here. Prayer is not telling God what to do. It's not bending His will to our command. It's not like He's a genie in the bottle. It's not like He's chained to, um, okay, Drew, what do you want me to do today? Just put it on the list. I'm your servant. That's not prayer. That's actually pagan. That's paganism. No sane believer wants God to answer a prayer request that would somehow disrupt or thwart His perfect plan for us, His perfect plan for our loved ones, His perfect plan with the whole redemption story. Think, think about how nervous you get when you have to speak, if you don't do it a lot, if you have to speak before a crowd, nervous about whether you're going to say the right thing. Think about how nervous someone gets when they're going to ask someone to marry them or they're trying to strike a business deal and they want to use exactly the right words. Think about how nervous you would be if the efficacy of your prayer were dependent on whether you worded it just right. Prayer, prayer would become weak and effective, it'd be a loose cannon. Shakespeare says, heavy lies the head that wears the crown. 
What is he saying? Well, anyone who exercises any kind of leadership knows the truth of that statement. We feel it as parents, as teachers, as pastors, as managers, as employers, whenever you're given responsibility of some sort, the more leadership responsibility you have, the heavier the load and the higher the stakes, the more likely you are to stay up at night fretting over whether you're doing the right thing. Well, who in his right mind would want to rule the entire universe? Who has a mind big enough to even know what he would be ruling over? Only God is wise enough and strong enough and loving enough to do it right. And that's the one I'm talking to. This text says the believer can pray with confident boldness and freedom of speech. So how is that possible? What if I pray the wrong thing? No worries. If we ask according to His will, He hears us. He hears our heart behind our words. He knows exactly what we would pray for if we had His perfect, complete view of all things. He knows that as those that believe in Him and have life from Him, we would not want Him to do anything that would be the wrong thing in some way. He hears us. He listens. Then verse 15 indicates that He gives us what we request. Here's what it says. We know He hears us. Whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So how can this work? How can my finite prayer tap into His infinite power and wisdom without my messing things up? Well, strikingly, Paul touches on this theme when he tells us that the Holy Spirit empowers our praying to make it effective. I'll remind you of what he says in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So we acknowledge that we are weak, more limited. For we do not know we're weak even in our knowledge, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God gives to every believer the amazing privilege of speaking freely and boldly with Him in prayer. He hears, and that means He listens. He answers, and He channels His power through our prayers. But prayer operates by His power, and it must operate according to His will. And that's exactly what we need to be able to pray boldly else we'd be terrified of making a mess of it all because of our limited perspective. We can throw it all on the table, knowing He will piece through it and pull together what's good there and what's right there and what's lined up with His perfect will. God gives us what we ask for, but He decides the time, He decides the way. If I don't have a positive answer to my request yet, it may be that my request was out of alignment with His will in some way. Or, or it may be that the best timing for the answer hasn't yet come. Listen, you trust Jesus who is interceding for you. You can trust the Spirit who is interpreting for you. And you can trust the Father who loves you and does all things well to do what you ask 
in the perfect way and at the perfect time. Don't stop talking to God. It's so easy to be cynical. We struggle with that. Now, why do I pray at all if it's just according to His will? Well, it's because of the relationship. It's because of the life that I have. Be confident. It's given to you as a gift through Jesus in whom you have put your faith. You can talk freely with those that you trust. You can talk openly with those you know truly love you. Well, more than anyone else on the planet, that's God. You can trust Him further than any other loved one or person you know, and He loves you more than anyone else loves you. So talk to Him boldly and confidently. Come boldly to Him. Speak freely with Him. That's what close friends and family do. Pray boldly, knowing that He will channel your request into perfect harmony with His will. I was reminded as I thought about this of that quote from Tennyson, Idols of the King, more things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. And I want to encourage you as a congregation, I want to encourage my own heart not to grow weary in the well-doing of praying boldly before God. You know, when we see bad things happen and we see just crazy, insane stuff happening, we, we tend to wring our hands and like, oh, it's all lost. It's all going down the drain. You don't know that. You ever thought about the definition of revival? You know what has to precede a revival? Death. You look at all the awakenings and revivals of history, there are dark, dark times that precede them. That's the definition. Did they know revival was coming? Not necessarily. In most cases, not. All they knew was to trust in Jesus, keep serving God, keep praying, and see what God would do. They knew the power of the Word. They knew the power of the gospel. They knew the power of Christ. And God's the one that brings revival. Men don't bring revival. God's the one that sends awakenings. You ever heard of the third great awakening? I haven't either. <laughs> but we don't know that it's not round the corner. We don't know that. So pray boldly and pray confidently and let God take your prayers and channel them and enlarge them to do beyond what we can ask or think. Confidence in prayer. The third gift he gives to us, and it's related to the prayer gift, is intercession for others. In verses 16 and 17, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. 
So when we talk about intercession, we, we intercede for one another for all kinds of things, for health needs, financial needs, relationship needs, every kind of need that we can imagine. But John is zeroing in on what is perhaps the most significant kind of intercession that we can do. And that is prayer for God to give life to sinners that we know. Just as God uses our proclamation of the gospel to bring life to those who hear and believe, and and that's a mystery, why would God choose to use limited people like us to share the good word of the gospel? I don't really know, except that strength is made perfect in weakness. He, He chooses our tongues to bring life to people through the gospel. In the same way, He uses our praying to give life to sinners as well. The power is His, but the privilege is ours. Now, usually the term brother refers to a fellow Christian, but here, and depending on who you read uh, regarding these verses, it appears to be a broader reference to a brother in the sense of Uh, our family or neighbors or friends or acquaintances with whom we have some kind of relationship, possibly even a nominal Christian in the congregation of believers. Other interpreters note that this verse, um, it doesn't seem to be referring to a Christian because it talks about God's giving the individual life. This is the reason they think it's a, a not necessarily a believer. If he's a believer, he already has life, according to verse 13 and verses that precede. He has eternal life. Another possible explanation that preserves the idea that a brother is reserved only for Christians is that God's giving this brother life is God preserving the life of a fellow believer, the spiritual life of a fellow believer that, that seems to be slipping, that God would keep him in the faith so that he doesn't fall away. And ultimately, I could probably make a case either way. Uh, depending on the moment of the day, I'm leaning one way or the other. The point to remember is that it is God who gives us life, and it's God who rescues us from sin and death, whether we have yet to believe or have done so already. The New Testament knows nothing of a genuine faith that does not continue and does not eventuate in life change. We need ongoing life from God in us. Believers are literally believing ones. They keep on believing. Repentance and faith are present not just at conversion, they continue throughout the Christian life. In other words, when when that shift happens, conversion is the turning point, my attitude towards sin changes. It becomes one of ongoing repentance wherever it crops up. And my attitude toward Christ changes, an attitude of ongoing faith and trust in Him. And we need, what this verse would indicate, as well as others, we need to be praying for one another, as well as for our friends who have yet to believe that God will give others life, that God will keep them healthy in a world that tries to seduce them into turning aside and pursuing sin instead. You may recall similar admonition from Jude when we studied that little book. You, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying, ties it into prayer, in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself, yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads us to eternal life, 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So we, we see there's this pull of the world. There's this, there's this kind of, of suction, quicksand of sin that wants to draw us under and drown us. We, we know we're in a battle for our very lives. And in context here, the death in 1 John 5 is speaking of spiritual death, not just physical death, and therefore of condemnation to eternal punishment. So that leads us to this question, what is this sin that leads to death? Well, John has already taught, and the letter helps us understand what he means here. He has taught us that deliberately refusing to believe, refusing to obey God's commands, refusing to love your brothers and your sisters, that all of this leads to eternal death. In fact, is an expression of death, that you're still in darkness. Without repentance from these sins, life is impossible. We remain in darkness and death. 1 John 3, 14, we know we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides, remains in death. So back to the verses here in order to answer the question. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John taught us in chapter 1 that no one is without sin, that everyone sins, believers included, and that believers confess their sins to receive forgiveness and cleansing. Why is that? That ongoing repentant attitude towards sin and faith in Jesus. But from this text, it's clear that there are levels of sin, sins from which we can repent and be restored, and a sin that is so high-handed that turning back, I'm going to say, is nearly impossible, but for extraordinary divine intervention. Now, we've been taught some about this. Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 talk about persons who have fallen away and cannot be restored to repentance. They have heard the gospel. They've benefited from association with the community of faith. They've enjoyed the blessings that God pours out on His people. And yet, they now repudiate the gospel. They boldly defy God's claims and have joined the rebellion led by Satan. Jesus Himself talks about the unforgivable sin of deliberately attributing to Satan what one knows to be the work of the Holy Spirit of God. So, given the warnings in this book about false teachers and antichrists and liars, John seems to have particularly in view those false teachers who are denying Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, or that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh sent by the Father. False teachers that are justifying sinful living as if it doesn't matter. False teachers that base their confidence in their higher knowledge while they show disdain and lack of love for the brothers. They've defected from the faith and are teaching others to do likewise. John's made clear that these enemies of the gospel are not just apostates, those that have fallen away. They are counterfeits and antichrists and liars that were never truly part of the community of believers. They're children of the devil, not of God. They reject the Son, and so they don't have the Father either. So we would conclude that this sin that leads to death is therefore not a sin 
you can unknowingly commit. It's not like, oh no, I, I'm, I'm afraid maybe I've gone to, I, I don't know whether I've committed this sin or not. Look, if you commit this kind of sin, you know you've committed it. It is deliberate, willful opposition to Christ and His gospel. It's not just a false teacher who's been taught the wrong thing from his birth. It's somebody who knew, knows the gospel, was taught the gospel, benefited from being among the people of the gospel, and now is deliberately opposing it, repudiating it, calling it a lie. John does not encourage praying for that kind of person. But it's good to note that he doesn't forbid it either. There is actual historical evidence that on occasion, God does rescue such persons. From a human perspective, we don't really know for sure when such persons have crossed the line of no return. It's hard to tell the difference between drift and and self-deception, or is this actually willful defiance? But John is cleaning us in to the tragic reality that such persons may never turn back. Despite the promise he gave about praying and God giving us answers, such persons may never turn back, and for that not to discourage us from interceding for others. So, you know, what is John doing for us? Because of the topic that he has been wrestling with throughout this letter of these false teachers and false gospels and the uncertainties and the confusion, he, he's bringing to bear, he's not giving us what we call a Sunday school answer about prayer. He, he's, he's letting us, he's acknowledging some of the difficulties when we're praying about things that are so significant as someone being given life from Jesus. That said, let me ask you these questions. For, for whom do you pray regularly? And we've encouraged you that are members of the church here to pray through that the directory of church membership and look at those spaces and pray through those families. But, but who else do you pray regularly for? Whom do you know? Who do you know is, is at risk you know, sometimes when we see uh, professing believers, people that we know that are at risk, it, it tends to anger us, or we're worried about them. Let, instead of that kind of response, let it be a response of prayer. Um, you know, teachers, you know who your trouble, troublesome students are. I know that my first response is not typically to pray for them. My response is more like sons of thunder in my heart. Okay, so, but to pray for them. And, and I've, I've been encouraged and confronted at times like, well, you know, you're having difficulty with this class or several, have you prayed for them? And, it's like, and you know, I kind of hang my head like, uh, you know. Use prayer for people you know are at risk, people that are drifting, people that are turning away. Pray that God will give them life. You know, think about your children and 
your grandchildren, for some of you even great-grandchildren, and we tremble for them in a world, a world of lies and deception being pumped into them. You know, the whole world is so accessible, and there's so many voices that are contrary to the voice of God, and we, we tremble for our children and our, our, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. We'll pray that God will give them life. The Christian school can't give them life. You as a parent can't give them life. Only God can give them life. So pray boldly and confidently for God to give them life. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need. Priceless gifts of God to all who believe. You have assurance of life. You don't have to wonder. Your, your, your course is set. Your, your journey has a destination, and you're enjoying, you're enjoying that life even now. You are given through your relationship with God through Jesus confidence in prayer. He says, come on. Come, children. Talk to me. Be bold. Be free in your speech. Don't worry you're going to say it the wrong way or pray the wrong thing. I'll take care of that. Just talk to me. And he says, in your praying, make sure you're interceding for others, especially in this most important area of life, eternal life from God through Jesus. What a Savior. What a God. What power is ours. What privilege is ours. And what joy to belong to Him. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank You for Your Word, and Lord, the things John has addressed are really near to our heart, and they, they intersect with some of the, the greatest burdens of our lives. And, and certainly those who know You and love You bear heavy burdens in terms of their children, their grandchildren, their friends, neighbors, people they know, for whom they desire life from God. Lord, may we boldly pray for that life. And Lord, in those cases where we don't know how far the drift has gone, we don't know how great the opposition really is, God, we count on You to make that discernment and we'll trust you in what you decide. And Lord, we just thank you for the life you have given us in Jesus. We thank you for not making it dependent on us, but for giving it to us through Jesus. Lord, strengthen our faith in him. Strengthen our faith in your precious promises. It is through them that you give us everything we need for life and godliness. Help us live that life till we see you face to face. We pray in Christ's name, amen.